And uh, uh, along that line, we're also going to want to find a, a patio and, a, and to sit down and enjoy a snack and a cold one on a hot day. And how's that going to look in about 10 days' time? Reopening the hospitality industry. Here to talk about it is Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Welcome back, Ian. Always a pleasure to say good morning to you. Oh, thanks, Sterling. This is like a weekly uh, event now, talking about how restaurants are going to come back online. So thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, let's talk about patios, because you personally and your association made a big pitch to the province uh, a week or so ago uh, with respect to giving the restaurant industry every possible advantage to reopen successfully while obviously observing and maintaining the new uh, physical distancing protocols. So what sort of patio manitoba started with patios and nobody inside what's the plan for bc a combination of both ian yeah so may after may 19th the restaurant can open and you know essentially uh it's going to be all about social distancing and hygiene and i know that the industry will do a great job there but the um when you look at social distancing in the restaurant you're probably looking at about 50 percent capacity yeah of what the restaurant is, and, and you can't make it at that. So what we're saying is, and sort of picking up in Dr. Henry's um, comments, get outside. So if you, then you say, okay, great, who's got a patio, who doesn't? What we're seeing a lot of places around the world, they're just using spaces that are not being utilized, sidewalks and roadways, and allowing restaurants to expand themselves outside to both increase their capacity and, you know, to provide what, what arguably could be a bit safer environment for some people to be outside enjoying it and getting out and enjoying the sunshine. So we've asked um, Sarah Kirby Young in Vancouver, uh, the councillor, mm-hmm. is putting uh, uh, forward a motion for the city to get innovative. We took that and wrote a letter to every municipality within British Columbia and said to the mayors and councils, look, you've got to find a new way of doing this every single day that a restaurant can't have a patio open is, you know, another potential restaurant that won't open. It's that critical. I suppose, Ian, it's also, it's important to remember that even if you do have a patio or access to a patio, it's still only going to be half a patio because you're going to have to maintain physical distancing outdoors as well as indoors. And as far as that distancing, Dr. Henry said, remember what the situation was like before we had to close the restaurants? We had made some new rules, two meters between tables and that sort of thing. She said, that's what's going to look like when we resume. So we at least have a memory of what that looked like. And it was pretty empty inside some restaurants, Ian. Yeah, it sure was. And, um, you know, because like I said, you're, and you just pointed out, you're about 50% capacity. So a, pat- a patty will allow to increase the capacity. So we're saying two things is let the business increase capacity and do some really creative stuff on, on patios, which would be like maybe the patio is a half a block away on the, on the, on, you know, on the road or you're, sh- or you're sharing it with another restaurant. That's right. Or you found an open space. I think the public will love that. But what we, what we need to push is the sort of bureaucracy around approvals and plans, and this could go on and on. I was on a, a Zoom call with the Northern community on Friday, and there was a couple of councillors on there, city councillors, and they started talking about the rules, mm-hmm. and they have to do this and that. And I said, guys, by the time you get through all that, it's going to be snowing again. Right. You've got to say, look, trust the business person to do the right thing. Let them set up the patios and then follow up with them. And if they're doing something really bizarre and wrong, then shut them down or get them fine. Sure. But in the meantime, you know, as you know, we've got three months of sunshine ahead of us. Every day counts. 
not to be reckless and not to open too fast and all those different things. Right. But, you know, uh, if you look at the statistics on unemployment uh, this month, a lot of that is restaurants of uh, 15 to 24 year olds that aren't working. It's, it's not a good situation. Absolutely. And so when we do uh, have a resumption on Tuesday, the 19th, is it necessary for each individual restaurant to have filed uh, a, some kind of business plan with WorkSafe BC? Here's what our new floor configuration is going to look like. Here's what the patio is going to look like and, and waiting for their approval. Is that part of the process of being ready on the 19th? No, they, it's actually the government's got a really interesting. This is amazing. They're saying to to uh, say Sterling, your restaurant must have a plan, period. So you don't have to submit it to get it approved because we'd never get open. Right. They're just going to say we we come in and ask you, and uh, we want to make sure you have it there. So we're going to help with that, so we can create sort of a generic plan for restaurants, so they don't have to sit and those that don't have the resources, because essentially they have to do two things. They have to show their employees that they are a safe environment to work in yes. and show their guests that they're a safe place to eat. And that's not going to be hard for the restaurant. I think the, the, the big, bigger challenge for us is to keep the confidence of or, or get the confidence of the consumer to say it's all right to come on out and enjoy a restaurant. It's going to be tough going for a while. Yeah, we did some but, surveys with Mario Canseco, and one of the things he was saying, BC people miss the most, Ian, is just going out for a, a snack and a, and a cold one with your friends. I mean, it's not number one on the list, but it's number three on a rather long list. We do miss that. How about, final question to you, how about yeah. the, the appetite for staff to return to what, for some, is going to be a questionably safe environment. What sort of, what are you hearing? Obviously, if you're in the business and it's your restaurant, you can't wait for it to be reopened. But what about getting help? Well, we're seeing, um, uh, we don't, haven't seen any problems, uh, well, I shouldn't say any, but generally the whole takeout and delivery where we have staff and people working in restaurants has worked out quite well. That, okay. that is interaction with guests. So if we expand that, I think you'll see that people who return to work against the work safe thing is that we have to provide a safe workplace. They'll feel comfortable. The plans are coming out Wednesday. Uh, we've had a look at them. They look reasonable. They put a lot of responsibility in the business owner to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't do the right thing, you and I are going to out them, right? Sure. Publicly. And, and we'll get on with this. So I, I think that that tension will, provi- will, will allow the, uh, the employees to come back and feel good about being safe. Interesting stuff. Ian, always a pleasure. We appreciate you getting up early on a Sunday morning. I know you're a super busy guy, but this is uh-huh. a, a, a bit of calm and a bit of confidence-inspiring messaging this morning to those of us who really do miss a chance to sit down and have a snack and a cold one with our friends. A Sterling Fox with you, joined by Sarb Munn from Commissary Connect. We're going to talk a little bit more about the restarting of BC's hospitality industry. Sarb, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Hi. Morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Just for the benefit of those who didn't hear your first visit with us a few weeks ago, Sarb, give us the elevator version of what Commissary Connect is all about. Sure. Uh, Well, Commissary Connect is a network of commercial kitchens. Uh, We have three across the Lower Mainland, uh, one of which is the, the first regional food hub and the pilot and demonstration site for the regional food hub network. Uh, essentially, what we do is we help companies start. I mean, typically, if you have a food idea, you will come to a Commissary Connect type facility. We'll help scale that that idea. You know, if it's a food truck, we'll help you get on the street. 
if you're a, a, a packaged good, we'll help you get into one of the major retailers and then basically help you grow and, and mentor you along the way. Interesting. Are catering companies also part of the group that uh, takes availability of Commissary Connects uh, facilities? Yes, they are. They're actually a large part of the group and they're, uh, they're part of the group that actually is being affected the most. Right, I would I would imagine so because uh, and, and food trucks uh, that all of that uh, prep work that goes into a day on the street in in your favorite food truck corner they actually start their day at four or five o'clock in the morning at a commissary somewhere, don't they? That is correct. Yes, yeah. so they would be in early in the morning, you know, get getting their prep done, uh, getting their staff already geared up, and uh, I mean they're on the street probably for about. 9, 10 a.m., finding a spot, yeah. and then they're, then they're working that lunch hour. What do you hear from, from your clients, Sarb, who are making use of, of your facilities? And a lot of these are startup businesses, and a lot of them, of course, are, are just full of, of energy. But it must be tempered these days by the reality of COVID-19. What's the buzz? Yes, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, a lot of them have been affected. Um, some of them are coming back to work now. I mean, so we spoke around last month, mm-hmm. um, and, and we, we had a, you know, a large portion of our membership basically to say that they weren't able to operate, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them are coming back now. We have farmer's markets that are kind of loosening up. Of course, the meal delivery service guys are doing well. Uh, and some of the products that are at the major retailers are doing well, too, I mean, some of the staples. So um, they're, they're, they're looking forward to coming back. I mean, as Ian said, I mean, there's only so many sunny days that we have, so especially for the food trucks and then some of the guys over at the farmer's market. I mean, this is, this is really what sustains them through the, through the winter, so the quicker they can get back and, and have things back to normal, the better. Yeah, well, and I, of course, we've been going on and on almost whining about how much I miss sitting out on a patio with some pals and some nice, uh, tasty treats and a couple of cold ones. Uh, I'm not the only one in Metro Vancouver feeling this way, sir, but what's, what's the story on the food trucks? Are they still making a go of it, those that are still going out and setting up every day, or is business, is traffic to the food trucks down because of a, shall we say, reluctant consumer? group well we see what happens from the um as you mentioned earlier from the balance sheet or from from, from the numbers side of it right so we're seeing a lot of them that are still not able to cover their rent or mm. cover their uh cover their fees but i mean they're trying right i mean it, it, it is difficult when you have the social distancing measures i mean a lot of them have downtown permits mm-hmm. so a lot of the food trucks that we work with have been around for quite some time so i mean these, these guys are having trouble of course because the majority of people are working from home now so um, so they're not seeing the type of foot traffic that they typically would see. But uh, in my opinion, I mean, social distancing, and that was really made for this type of model, right? I mean, a food truck model where you already have a lineup sure. outside. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, that, that is, it does lend itself. I mean, if, if there's any silver lining here, it's that these guys can continue to keep going. I mean, they still have the, the high level of food safety at one of these back-end commissaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot going for them. I just hope we can be able to navigate them through these uh, this, this next little while and, and hopefully get them to see some summer. Well, you know, the, those numbers that came out on Friday, Sarb, were pretty staggering in terms of, of, of just a, um, the number of people who have lost their work in the past a couple of months and the predominance of hospitality and particularly restaurant industry people on that list. It, it really is overwhelming. And you've got to know that most of them are just itching to get back to work and and are you hearing though uh, about any uh, people who are in the industry who are well a little apprehensive about all of this covid business still going on and don't necessarily want to get into the mix yeah there are there are a few there are a few that have staff members of course that are unsure yeah i mean like we like we all are right i mean let's be honest here i mean it is um, it's, I mean, the unknown is always a little bit frightening, but I mean, what we're starting to see is people's kind of 
starting off with kind of a skeleton crew with just, you know, just a couple guys or a couple people that, that would have typically, uh, I mean, their, their core staff is what they're starting with. Uh, we're able to also schedule who's in and out of the sites and kind of, you know, be able to limit as much interaction as possible. So try to keep those measures still in place as companies are slowly starting to come back to work. Um, but yeah, of course, I mean, the majority of these entrepreneurs, of course, would want to be, have their companies back up and, and running and, 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 and they're trying, they're trying to focus in on, on the, um, on the concerns of the other staff as much as possible. Sure. Now, you, you're a good guest to have because you talk to so many different types of people in the restaurant and food business, Sarb. And I'm curious about, the. I mean, if you're a cactus club or a keg and you've got a 350-seat restaurant plus a patio and the government says you got to do everything in half, you can still put enough people in there to probably make a go of it. But if your restaurant is only maybe 80 seats in the first place, and you don't have a patio, uh, and yet you you know that you can make a, on the nineteenth. We can you know do the distancing and get a few people in there. How likely or how possible is it financially to make a go of it with such a limited customer base? Oh, it's going to be tough. Uh, I mean, as Ian said, everyone's getting creative on how they're able to do this, and so, uh, so we're, we're wishing them the best. But of course, it's going to be tough. Um, I'm wondering whether we're going to start seeing a write down in some of these rents, some of these retail rents, uh, just to be able to, you know, hold up some of these uh, these amazing restaurants. Absolutely. I mean, the, the last thing we want to see is is these amazing brick and mortar restaurants that have taken years to establish themselves to help us to not not be there anymore. Now, finally, uh, you've uh, you just you you've opened the door to my last question, and and I appreciate it. Uh, in terms of rent subsidies, the feds are offering some kind of partial rent relief, uh, as is the province to some extent. Have any of your acquaintances in the business been able to avail themselves of these benefits at all, Sarb? They're trying. I mean, the the the, the rules keep making themselves available, to be honest. And then last we heard is that you have to be a mortgage owner. So basically the owner of that property to be able to uh, accept or be able to get that Got it. subsidy. Oh, okay. um, and it, yeah, and it is actually to the landlord. Um, so we, we are honoring whatever we can to our members. Um, and also we have to understand, for, especially from our side, I mean, it is not just all rent. It is also, I mean, you have the overhead and that, that's a part mm. of that model too. Absolutely. So being able to, yeah, I mean, with, with, with the, the ministry and, or sorry, the, the province coming up with its own rules, I mean, the commissaries and, and the food hubs basically have to create their own rules uh, to be able to cover their costs also, because only a small portion of, of what we charge is rent. Yeah. Sarb, we uh, keep our fingers crossed for you and all of your friends in the biz. Thanks for coming back and we'll talk again. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Sterling. It was my pleasure. Sarb Mund is the CEO of Commissary Connect. Look him up. Very interesting Vancouver enterprise. In all the years Chevy has sold Silverados and Ford is trafficking in 150s, few in Detroit ever dreamed the day would come that pickups would outsell passenger cars. But the highly lucrative truck segment dominated by Ford, General Motors, and Fiat Chrysler automobiles did just that. Last month, pickups beat cars by more than 17,000 units in the United States. This is uh, something that our next guest has actually been seeing coming for quite some time, and he's going to have a See I Told You So moment right here on the radio. Jeremy Cato, automotive journalist, formerly with the Globe and mail uh, Cato Car Guide, the website, back with us on CKNW Mornings. Hi, Jeremy. 
Hi, Sterling. Uh, but I would never say I told you so. <laughs> I'm sure you never. would. So, uh, <laughs> the, but it has been coming for quite some time, especially when we've seen in the past few years, Jeremy, car or vehicle manufacturers like Ford particularly actually saying, you know what, we're not going to make 14 sedans anymore. We're going to make four. Uh, yeah, we, we've seen that for a long time. We've seen the whole trend towards um, to truck sales um, accelerate pretty quickly in the last two decades and with the decline of passenger cars. And so, you know, to just to add to the flavor to what you've already said, um, about three quarters of all the vehicles sold in Canada and the U.S. now are some kind of light truck. So that's a pickup, a, an SUV or a minivan. And, and that trend doesn't look like it's going to slow down Although in this <laughs> this pandemic environment, who knows, right? Yeah. Like the, the world is changing by the second, not by the by the year. So but, an, but an, that's an, the an SUV, thing. Jeremy, an SUV is officially by the industry classified as a truck, right? It is minivans, SUVs. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me, and pickup trucks. So, yeah, I mean, part of the reason pickup sales have exploded in, in the United States is there's you know it, some of that's the wealth factor, some of that's the fear factor. Some of that's the luxury factor, and some of that is the fact the lack of availability of, of car choices. And add into that, Sterling, there's a there's a certain ch- chunk of aging population mm-hmm. buyers out there that simply do not want to climb down into a car. They'd much rather slide into an SUV or climb up slightly into a pickup truck that makes them feel safer and gives them a better view of the road. Interesting. Now, because uh, we've got this pandemic going on, we've seen a, just a dramatic, <laughs> dramatic turnaround yeah. in, in, in events. And these sales figures that I was quoting, which saw truck trucks of all platforms outsell sedans uh, last month, uh, it has to be tempered, Jeremy, by the fact that vehicle sales of all descriptions were down, what is it, 75% in the month of April? Yeah, closer to eighty, but you know, you know that's that's a dramatic number, and and to put that in some perspective from a jobs perspective, because not everybody cares about car sales, but one in seven jobs in Canada is associated with the car business in hmm. some way, whether it's manufacturing, parts manufacturing, or sales and service. Um, there's about in Canada on a typical year about five million vehicles are bought and sold, and. About three million of those are used cars, and two million are, are new vehicles of some sort. So, I mean, the 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 demise of car sales um, trickles down into uh, new vehicle sales trickles down right through the economy, and it's pretty dramatic. And um, if there's one industry that you don't want to lose overnight, it's it's the auto industry. And, and let me just add to that: most of the jobs associated with the auto industry are good paying jobs. Mm-hmm. These are not you're not delivering a pizza or making a cappuccino at Starbucks. I mean, these are jobs that if you live in many of the towns where vehicles or parts are manufactured, it's the old fashioned, gosh, one income can support an entire family, which is is not what we, certainly what we live here in Vancouver. That's that's almost impossible. So is this 2020, once we get through the, the really urgent part of the pandemic, which hopefully in British Columbia, Jeremy, will see phase two on the 19th of this month actually kick in when it's supposed to, assuming we can restrain ourselves and, and distances our distance ourselves effectively. 
Uh, sure. When all of that comes back, car dealerships, the sales rooms will be open. Now, the service departments have been open all the way, but the car dealerships, the sales rooms have been closed. They're still doing telephone calls and that sort of thing. But when the sales uh, rooms are open, the showrooms, uh, um, there's still going to be a tremendous reluctance to say nothing of a limited amount of cash flow on the part of consumers. So are we going to see some pretty whopping huge incentives and super deals uh, coming out of especially the 2020 model year that has to be cleared out by this fall? Uh, the answer, the short answer to that is yes. And there's some ways to even do even better in terms of picking and choosing the best deals. Um, you know, this shutdown mostly across Canada and the United States came pretty quickly and that has left a lot of dealers with a lot of product on their lot that they're paying, they're paying for. Um, so the first thing dealers want to clear is whatever's on their lot because, the, you know, the interest costs uh, are pretty dramatic for that. So the first place to look for deals is, is whatever you can see on the lot. If you don't need to custom order, you're going to get a better deal because many, many dealers have been sitting on inventory for two months or more. And that's, that's, it's, it's better to clear it than to pay for it uh, on an ongoing basis. Secondly, though, once that, that, that uh, backlog is cleared, um, it'll be a little bit tricky to see what comes next because most manufacturing has been, has been shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so some are starting up now. Honda announced, I think, on Friday in Canada that they were restarting manufacturing of Honda products. But, um, the, you know, it's the old supply and demand thing, Sterling. If, if there's no supply, the demand will exceed it, and that means prices will stay high. So, so the, the, the point I would make is that if you want to get a deal, pick something that's on the lot right now uh, because there's not going to be a lot of supply out there which means in the in the short term well certainly manufacturers and dealer and their dealers will want you to order but because there's you know they haven't built up a lot of um, excess inventory those great deals won't exist uh, to the same extent of what you could get from a dealer on a dealer lot today. Well, given the fact that uh, you, you've itemized the fact that dealers really have this this backlog of inventory, they really and they've been paying for and sitting on yep. it with no action at all. Uh, are trade ins? This is a bad time for trade ins because what you're doing is taking one vehicle off the lot and putting another one on it. So is, you're not helping the dealer a whole lot, or are you? Well, I, I, you know, the smart dealers know how to work that trade in very well so that they make a profit. Um, you know, the, so uh, the I think you can do trade ins and you'll get, you know, the ease of it is what makes it a very good business sure. for, for car dealers. But, um, so the, the, I think this will be a case by case basis, to be honest with you. Um, if you uh, my advice for the last 30 years, anybody who's ever asked was really don't do a trade in. Sell your car privately. You'll make more money. Um, you know, just don't do it. Uh, if you sell privately, they, there's plenty of research to suggest that you'll get a much better deal. Because if the dealer gives you a great price in your trade, and most good salespeople will find a way to make up for that in some other part of the deal, whether it's the interest rate if you take a loan, or they add in, uh, you know, they convince you to take some undercoating for an extra thousand dollars that maybe you don't need. Um, those kinds of things. So the the best advice is to sell your car and don't trade it in at all. Ah, okay. And with that in mind, uh, before we take the break here, uh, going to the Craigslist and the other spots where people, uh, Marketplace on Facebook is another very popular spot. Uh, mm-hmm. is, that, is that going to be, will there, I would think, also be the opportunity for some pretty sizzling deals in that area too, don't you? 
Well, I, I think one of the factors you, you can look at is just look at the broad economy. And there are people who have, are really struggling in, during this, uh, this uh, current pandemic situation. And one of the things you do when you need money is you unload assets. And what's an asset? Well, a car or mm-hmm, a vehicle. Sure. So, 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 I mean, I hate to suggest, because it really seems quite cruel, that you take advantage of, of someone who is in a distressed situation. But um, that's the reality of the world. There will be people out there who need cash, and they will be. And they've decided, mm, I'm going to use transit, or I'm going to ride a bike, or I'm going to get a less expensive vehicle, and there will be deals like that. You know, another place to look for those kinds of deals is on lease busters, you know, you know the lease oh, sure. yeah. uh, places. So you can find people who, you know, if you've been living for the last two months without the use of your car, you may just say, you know, I could probably get by with, you know, with my family with one car and, uh, you know, we don't need we don't need the second car because my employer has shut the office. Well, and there I don't you need go. That second car. Well, you know, you so, and I've talked about this in the past. Yeah. You know, this this whole this pandemic is cha- is a game changer. There's absolutely no dodging that one, uh, Jeremy. And there are going to be companies with huge office spaces going. You know, we haven't had anybody in the actual office here for a couple of months, and we're still humming right along. Uh, it, it a lot is going to change as a result of this, and even the way in which we travel to and from work, assuming we're going to go back to some workplace may change. And I'm quoting from an article at CatoCarGuy.com. Cato, by the way, friends, is spelled C-A-T-O. And Jeremy's website is CatoCarGuy.com. Here's a quote. Automotors and their dealers as a group have sprung into action, recognizing that the pandemic, severe and tragic as it is, will eventually be brought under control. Hard-hit economies will bounce back, too. How robustly and how quickly, however, remains a question. This is a preamble to an article that Jeremy wrote for his website on how individuals, particularly with new cars and loans, can make arrangements with their uh, dealers and with their uh, loan granting company uh, to uh, delay or postpone payments. And Jeremy expanded your article. Talk a little bit more about the remedies available to people who are feeling the pressure. The simplest uh, and most obvious one uh, is is a deferred uh, car payment, and I, the last number I saw suggested that somewhere between four hundred and six hundred thousand Canadians have deferred their car payments for at least two months, uh, simply by calling the dealer and asking. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, is that you know the the dealers and their and the manufacturers they they uh, from which they get their supply understand that you know in some cases people just don't have the money to make the car payment sure. it's far more sensible just to defer it keep it as an asset on the books a performing asset rather than a, a delinquent one and and carry on and hope for the best uh, sometime in june or july of this year and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of canadians have done that interesting um, and without any hassle at all, literally there are, you know, I mean, I've, I've called dealers, I've asked them, I've talked to manufacturers about this, and, they say, and, and their, their response really is, what choice do we have? We have to help our customers, um, you know, people who have lost their jobs, um, and, the, and certainly the most economically vulnerable are the hourly workers sure. in, in Canada. So let's uh, let's just keep them as a happy customer and and carry on the two months down the road. So that's the number one thing to do. Yeah, I'm glad we're having this conversation, Jeremy, because I know and you know too that some some people listening to us this morning have taken advantage of these offers from the various manufacturers. However, there are still we're proud Canadians, and there are still those in our midst who are still, frankly, a little too embarrassed 
to be sure. uh, to approach the dealer and say, look, you know, I, I can't make a payment. Probably not going to be able to make one next month. I'm, I'm worried about the mortgage, let alone my car loan. At which point, at which point, the dealer is likely to say, well, we hear you. Uh, and so, okay, we'll work with you. The trick is, and we've had some lawyers on the program recently, too, with all of this going on. The, the, the big trick, Jeremy, and you know this better than most, is to reach out, to establish contact. And in the yep. case of, of car loans, et cetera, in many cases, especially when you're dealing with an in-house uh, financing arrangement, uh, it's surprisingly easy. They're, they do get it, don't they? Uh, they do. And, and it, it, it's just good business. I mean, why would you... Uh, I mean, this is kind of a philosophical issue. Is that you know a lot of people are are, are either laid off or have lost their jobs entirely mm-hmm. through no fault of their own. It's, it has nothing to do with work performance or loyalty to their uh, you know to their customers or to their employer. It's, I mean, they were just told not to go to work and by government authorities and and that's and medical authorities and that's that. So I don't think you should feel guilty about the fact that you've you're not working because. You've been forced not to work. Uh, that seems a little odd. I just want to economically, though. There's a couple of other things that I think people are going to really think about very, very strongly okay. um, going forward. Is that um, lots of people have been making do without driving and are realizing that maybe we don't need all these cars. Good and I think point. that is. A, I think that's a worry for a lot of. Uh, dealers and manufacturers that people will say, you know, I just don't need to replace that vehicle or I don't need a new one because I'm, I'm not driving to work. The, on the costing side, though, too, I think one thing that citizens of British Columbia might want to consider pushing even harder um, is insurance, is the insurance issue. Um, you know, the, when I've looked into this, most people are not getting dramatic reductions in their insurance if they keep their vehicle mm-hmm. on the road. So you reduce it from business work to just pleasure. We're talking like a hundred or two hundred dollars a year, which is peanuts, given that you know most people are paying a couple of grand a year now yep. to insure a, a new car. Uh, I think I think ICBC um, is clearly not fixing as paying for, to, for as many cars to get fixed and as many soft tissue injuries as it has in a normal circumstance. And I think there needs to be some explanation by Minister Eby about why insurance rates haven't gone down more for the typical British Columbian. A good point, particularly as uh, in other provinces where private insurance uh, reigns supreme, we have seen across the board deductions and rebates even in some cases for people who literally have had the car parked for the last two months. Yeah, yeah. So I think think the Minister Eby has uh, something to explain. Uh, you're a big e-car guy. You and I have had some pretty good conversations about e-cars and the coming reality that is the electri- electrification of, of our vehicles. But you wrote an interesting piece on, on your website, CatoCarGuy.com, about car companies with the pandemic and the slowing of the economy. One of the first things that gets cut in terms of, okay, we got we got to reduce costs. One of the first budgets that got the, got the hook was the research and development budget, and a lot of that is about electrification of cars. Right, and, and this is going to play, and that is true. Uh, it, you know, if you've got to cut costs, you cut costs in the things that are easy to cut. Sure. And, uh, and that involves vehicles that aren't on the market right now. So what most manufacturers around the world are doing is channeling their, their R&D budgets into maintaining the, the existing fleet vehicles for, for now in the next five years. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen. How many people who are, are willing to pay a premium for an electric or a hybrid style vehicle uh, coming out of this, who knows? But what is, one interesting point around that is, is that I, I think I'm, I might have mentioned that is that this is definitely playing into the hands of, of Tesla, which is the most high-profile electric manufacturer 
uh, in the world. Yep. And, and uh, you know, this is creating an open playing field for Tesla. And uh, investors have kind of noticed. I mean, there was a point in the last few weeks where Tesla as a car company was worth about $200 billion. And to put that in perspective, that's about twice the combined value of Ford and General Motors together. Mm-hmm. So, and Tesla is an unprofitable vehicle, but it's only selling 500,000 vehicles a year. So, but they, you know, Tesla is now positioning itself um, because the electrification technology at Tesla is already in place as a dominant global player. And uh, I think it's a great mistake for the established legacy automakers to give ground to Tesla like that. But it looks like they're doing it. Interesting stuff. But yes, of course, the the movement is uh, is underway, and uh, we might have a, a slight uh, down. Uh, draft uh, with the pandemic, but it is certainly not in any way going to, to, to slow the, the the swing to electric vehicles at all, is it? Can I, can I make one point on that? Is it is it thirty seconds very, here, my friend? Go for okay. it. What we've noted with all these cars getting off the road is how quickly the air quality cleans. Yes. Up. So what I would say is that if we change the fleet dramatically to clean fueled uh, electric vehicles, that means hydro in Vancouver, uh-huh. not coal fired plants in Alberta. Um, then you're going to see the air quality spruce up pretty quickly if, if we could make that big switch. Now, is that going to happen? That's a big question. Uh, ben, and a good question to ask, my friend. Indeed it is. Jeremy, always a pleasure. Thank you for getting up early to do this. It's a treat to have you on the radio. Uh, going to go have another cup of coffee. Take care. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Kato Carguy, C-A-T-O, carguy.com. Our next guest, like the rest of us, has no real idea what's going to happen when our several-phase recovery program kicks in on May 19th, but he has been quoted as saying the following. I would expect, as we move through May into June, we're going to see the economy recover, but... It's going to be gradual. Our next guest is the Deputy Chief Economist with the Central One Credit Union. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Brian Yu. Hi, Brian. Hey, good morning. It's good to have you with us. A gradual recovery. But then uh, in the same article, and I'm quoting from the Georgia Strait, uh, you also go on to say that, in fact, Central One is uh, forecasting a reduction in B.C.'s gross domestic product this year. So how do you square that circle, a recovery that includes a GDP reduction? Yeah, I think right now in terms of, um, you know, where how the economy uh, evolves through um, through this year. It's largely we've seen uh, the worst of the shock. I think in terms of uh, economic activity, we had the the shutdowns uh, from many sectors really late March through April. Um, with the, the restarts in parts of the economy, uh, you start to see more restaurants reopening, mm-hmm. the uh, more retail uh, segments reopening as well. Um, that should propel us into the second half of the year. But it's really going to be dependent upon uh, how. Um, in terms of how much of a containment measures are still in place, how much distancing is required, what do, what do businesses need to do, and whether or not consumers themselves are going to be uh, confident enough to really get back to somewhat of a more normal uh, normal interactions. That's a very interesting point. I want to pick up on that, on that again in a second, but just to clarify, the 7% reduction in the overall gross domestic product for British Columbia for 2020, Brian, is simply a reality. It's a function of having the province's economy completely completely shut down or almost completely shut down for the period that has been, uh, what, 60 days and counting so far? Right, yeah, I think that, you know, there's lots of areas of the economy that were still open. Construction was still going on. Yeah. Probably at a little bit of a lower pace than it was. Um, but people in general were staying home. 
uh, restaurants are closed. Uh, so a lot of that uh, down, uh, that uh, negative number is already built into uh, this first part of the year. But even when we when we rebound, it's not going to be that quick snapback uh, of a uh, of uh, to where we were pre-COVID-19. Uh, we still have those containment measures in place. Uh, businesses can't run to the same level of operation that they had previously as well. And tourism itself, uh, that's an area that's not coming back for some time. Well, especially in an economy like British Columbia, Brian, that is so heavily reliant on tourism. I mean, every every one of those cruise ships that rolls into our and docks at Canada Place, that represents $1.3 million in cash into the local economy each time a boat ties up. Well, that's not going to happen all summer. Uh, so the tourism industry is going to take a particularly stiff hit. Uh, do you see, though, any uh, any relief later in the year uh, for tourism? It's it's likely to be the least represented sector by in terms of recovery. Uh, that's where I'm I'm looking at things from from my perspective, and I see that being the hardest hit and the longest to re- to recover. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, when we're looking at the tourism side, both uh, the the major hit I think is still going to be the international. Lows, whether it's the um, whether it's the business uh, conference goers who are coming to Vancouver for for major events, or it's just general international tourism to the area, mm-hmm. uh, we might see some improvements in terms of domestic tourism, where Canadians are uh, either just driving out to BC, or but but the key hit here is it's not only you know when we think about tourism, it is all of the spending on on uh, restaurants, it's, it's hotels, accommodations. Uh, those types of activities, and, and those aren't going to be coming back, and it's going to be tied in large part, I think, also to border restrictions. What is that going to look like as yeah. we go forward, um, not only in Canada, but also other countries? Um, how, does, how does that square? How much in terms of quarantines uh, will people still be required? And, and as a result, uh, similarly, I think consumers are, uh, the, the travelers are going to be uh, really making that decision of whether it's worthwhile even doing that having that vacation uh, this year or uh, or wait it out. And I think a lot of people will be waiting it out. Yeah, good point, Brian. And, and that brings us back to the issue of confidence, both on the consumer and provider side. Let's deal with the providers first, because even though effective May 18th phase, uh, sorry, May 19th, phase two of the Restart BC plan kicks in with certain businesses, retail and other businesses, and we know the list, it's available on the government website, will be allowed to open. I'm wondering, though, and you're the guy at the bank, the credit union, I wonder what you're hearing from your clients, people who are in the service provision business, Brian, just because the law says you can open your store on Tuesday the 19th, I suspect there will be some stores that aren't going to open because the proprietors are simply not confident enough that they're for their own personal health and safety. Um, yeah, I think that um, for businesses there is going to be that a little bit of that concern for some, especially high touch businesses. Yeah. Um, what we are, I think, we are still looking at those for businesses. They and many of them want to reopen as well. Oh no, yeah, that's for sure. They're, they want to be. They still have costs. They have their fixed costs that they have to cover. Um, and reopening means at least the revenue to cover some of that. Um, so as long as they're still viable, you know, they're still... And, and we also remember some of these businesses also pivoted as well during the pandemic. They weren't told to shut down completely right. in many retail cases. Mm-hmm. So they had already pivoted in part to online sales as well. More of that, of that type of activity. So we would expect to still a combination to be in place is that 
hopefully you're going to get there. They want to get those um, uh, those uh, people into their stores, although likely through a distance and some type of a under new um, uh, new operational methods. Uh, but also kind of having that that uh, that business in place as well. So I expect the businesses will be pretty much raring to go. I think so um, too. Um, but there will be some. Again, I, I believe that some. Uh, you know, Anecdotally, the hair salon, some of them mm-hmm. are somewhat concerned because, again, it's a high-touch business versus some retail, which is less high-touch. Uh, still, place-to-face, uh, but again, again uh, a little less so. Mario Canseco over at Research Company joined us a couple of weeks ago, Brian, to talk about. He's a great survey and pollmeister, and he was talking to British Columbians about the things we miss the most during this prolonged uh, period, uh, what uh, Charlie Smith over at the Strait called the Great Suppression. Uh, the, and, and one of the things, number three on that list of the top ten things we miss the most was going out for eats and drinks with friends. Uh, and so uh, even though we miss it to a very great degree, the same poll also quoted a lower number than people reporting missing the experience that, that who are actually planning on going out. There is still a consumer reluctance, especially on the hospitality side. Do you feel that too? Yeah, I think as long as we're in a scenario where we don't have a vaccine and we don't see um, you know, very, uh, very clear treatment methods, uh, for this, uh, consumers are going to be somewhat uh, hesitant to to go back to that lifestyle or that type of um, um, socialization. Um, people have also been some more accustomed now, I think, to eating at home and just and getting takeout, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, part of that social the social experience for some of these uh, restaurants and things like that is also just the the fact that it is somewhat crowded, right? That's the, the kind of the idea that you're in a venue where sure. you're, you're getting service and you're also there's a lot of people there. But in a new world, um, there's going to be requiring some capacity constraints, whether it's spacing out tables, whether it's I know in some cases in the U.S. we see plexiglass coming yes. up between booths. I expect example. we'll see that in Canada too, don't you? Yeah, I think we're going to have to see some type of um, uh, some type of a um, um, containment or some investments from the part of businesses to ensure this uh, increased distancing. Um, so those are all the factors which really make the experience different. And there might be some municipal changes coming that where uh, again it's extending the patio area, so you have more uh, more of an area to serve customers, and again allowing that distancing be put into place. So I think there's many ways can go, this can head. If, 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 the, if consumers are confident enough and feel that they're relatively safer uh, and they don't feel that there's a huge risk, yeah, you could see this move back. But again, it's, it's heading into that constraint on the part of businesses as well that they need to make adjustments. That's right. And, and of course, uh, they and we were talking with the Restaurant and Food Association's Ian Tostenson earlier, and every business, regardless of the type of service it provides, does have to have a plan. They don't have to file it with anybody, but they have to have a plan. They have to have a floor plan for distancing. They have to have a business model for dealing with, these, uh, with COVID-19 circumstances. Uh, and uh, again, if someone pops by, you have to be able to show them the paperwork and how you're adhering to it. So it is a different world. Brian Yu is the Deputy Chief Economist with Central One Credit Union. Brian is still with us. And Brian and I are joined by Jill Colleen, who is a communications uh, strategist uh, representing, in this case, Army and Navy. Jill, good morning to you and thanks for being with us. Good morning. It's nice to be here. It's good to have you. Let me just quote one line. This is from a letter sent by the owner of Army and Navy to all staff personnel a couple of days ago. After an incredible 101 years, we have made the difficult decision to permanently close 
Army, and Navy. In March, we were forced to shutter all five of our stores and temporarily lay off our staff. We had hoped to reopen, but the economic challenges of COVID-19 have proven insurmountable. And the letter goes on several more sentences, but that's it. In a nutshell, Jill, it's over. And, and a shock to British Columbians. This is an iconic retail establishment. I think uh, shock is, is the perfect word. And um, just watching over the past 24 hours, the reaction of people has been extraordinary. Everybody in Western Canada uh, seems to have an Army and Navy story. Yeah, you're, you're um, right about that. And th- you were mentioning when we talked yesterday very briefly, just to see if we could persuade you to join us this morning, you mentioned that this weekend right now would typically have been the big Army and Navy shoe sale, wouldn't it? Yes, we should uh, We should be uh, shopping for shoes, um, but um, we are bidding a very fond and loved farewell to, as you said, an, uh, an iconic uh, store, an iconic uh, family that kept Army and Navy in Vancouver, in Edmonton, in, in Calgary, uh, for more than 100 years, mm-hmm. 101 years, actually. Yeah, and, and the, the other part about the story that we don't know much about, and this is where you come in even more, Jill, this morning, is this whole matter of the Face the World Foundation. This is the charitable arm of Army and Navy. You are a member of the board of directors of Face the World. Jackie Cohen, the owner of Army and Navy, has in the letter that I quoted from also indicated an ongoing commitment to the foundation. Tell us a little bit more about the kind of work that's going on, particularly right now during the COVID pandemic? Well, uh, Face the World Foundation was started by Jackie 30 years ago, and it um, was established to help the city's most vulnerable. And the impact over the 30 years is is unprecedented. Um, It was a forerunner to so much of the charitable good works we see in Vancouver these days. Mm -hmm. Um, And the foundation is as strong, if not stronger than ever. Um, In the early days of of this pandemic, um, not knowing where things were going, but knowing that um, so many organizations were going to be in need, we um, actually identified a number of the smaller organizations. And that really has been where we have focused for 30 years is that the smaller underserved uh, charitable organizations. But we identified um, several of those and were directly in touch with them uh, and offered to send a small amount of money. Um, And they all were beyond appreciative. They wanted to know if if they had to spend it in a certain area or if, you know, what kind of report we needed. Mm -hmm. And we just said, you spend it exactly how you need it. We We don't need a report. You, you take it and run with it. And um, we also supported an organization that is uh, feeding, <clears throat> excuse me, feeding uh, children uh, at food risk. So uh, we are very active. And, and Jackie is going to be digging into that even more um, in, in the weeks and months ahead. But her commitment to um, Face the World Foundation has always been incredible. Indeed. Jackie Cohen, of course, will be talking to, I'm sure, Simi Sarah or Mike Smith or Jill Bennett very soon. She's taking the weekend off. Understandably, Jill, it's been quite an emotionally draining experience to close down a 101-year-old company. Uh, But we thank you for being with us this morning and reminding us, too, about the charitable arm of Army and Navy, the Face the World Foundation. It's quite a jolt, and uh, it's, it's going it's changing the landscape permanently. Thanks, Jill. 
Thank you, Sterling. Brian, Take you care. what what do you make of all of this? I mean, this is a, you're you're a Vancouver guy. You grew up here. You know the story of Army and Navy. My favorite pair of jeans cost me ten bucks, Brian. I still have them. I bought them from Army and Navy two and a half years ago. This is a local institution and it's kaput. What do you make of all this? Uh, it's so iconic as as uh, the Army and Navy. Uh, and really, I think it just underscores what we're seeing in the landscape right now. Um, we've seen a lot of, number one, uh, in terms of the retail um, job losses, or wholesale retail trade job losses, we've lost about, you know, close to about 20% in the last uh, couple of months. A lot That's of right. these are going to be temporary. I think a lot of people will, will be going back to, the, to their old workplaces. Um, but for a lot of the businesses, it is a, it's a huge hurdle um, in terms of, number one, you have a lot of those costs, whether it's rent, whether it's, um, uh, whether it's other types of fixed costs that they have. And even after this, it could be a question of how much foot traction they have uh, under the new, in a new norm. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's absolutely tons of challenges, I think, uh, for retailers across the board right now. And, and this is another, just another highlight of what we're seeing, not only in Canada, but also uh, in the U.S. as well. Yeah, we talked about Neiman Marcus uh, last week declaring bankruptcy. J.C. Penney is likely to do the same this coming week, Brian. And with, mm-hmm. the, with the demise of Army and Navy, I mean, the one thing that we have noticed, again, the pandemic is a game changer for, in so many ways. And one of the things that to Canadian shoppers and consumers, and you're a lender, you know about all of this stuff. One of the things that we've been doing more of, literally on a daily basis, is shopping online as it has become a somewhat dangerous dangerous or risky to go to retail establishments, those that are even open, more and more of us have just, you know, grabbed uh, grabbed the mouse and uh, start clicking around and get what you want online. And that's hurting uh, brick and mortar retail establishments big time, isn't it? Yeah, and and that's absolutely the case. I think there's also been a shift when we look at, you know, what people have been buying during the pandemic. It also differs. Um, We've, um, you know, we've seen the reports that uh, the number of building materials we are putting uh, are bringing forward some of their renovation plans, at least on the exterior or, or uh, home plans. Also, appliances, small appliances, things. You know, if you're baking bread, you probably need some appliances, right? <laughs> so the the types of things that people are buying have definitely changed. But as we move forward and we see workplaces reopen as well, you are start to see um, more offices and other types of institutions um, uh, having their workers back in, in place. We, we could see some some ramp up in in um, this on-site shopping as well. But it is going to be different, and it will be slower than it was by significant margins. So I think a lot of retailers themselves, this pivot towards online, it's not only on the consumer side, but I think the, the businesses will be looking at that as a much a larger component of their business going forward, not just a small segment that's growing fast. Yeah, yeah. It's, you've, used, you've used that word again, Brian, and it's become a very popular word in, this, in the time of this pandemic, and the word is pivot. As companies and enterprises and individuals are compelled to change their business model, they have to be able to swivel uh, or pivot and, and find new ways to generate cash flow. Uh, and I'm wondering uh, wh- whether you're thinking as a lot of uh, opinion makers are saying that companies with enormous amounts of... Re- I'm thinking of my own company. Here on the 21st floor at Georgia and Granville, there are three people in the building right now, Brian. Uh, uh-huh. and, and, and most of my colleagues, including some of my broadcast colleagues, are working not from the studios, but from their homes. And my company has got to be going, you know, we're paying a whack of dough for all of this uh, real estate downtown. And we've, uh, we've come to learn that we probably don't need this much because a lot of our people can do just a, a great bang up job from home. So how is that ultimately going to play out in terms of commercial real estate? 
Yeah, I, I think that's uh, there is just going to be this wave towards again uh, more work from home, um, uh, especially in the office. Not only when do people uh, need to go back at some point, but they also need to have spacing or the office environment kind of restructured a bit to enable or to uh, enable this uh, distancing and more space between people. Uh, I think there there has to be some level of discussion. I think as we go forward, though, that you know, right now we're kind of operating in this in the six-week, eight-week mode that we've sure. been in, yeah. that everybody's kind of stepping up and, and working from home just because they have to. It's not necessarily because they want to. That's true. Um, and at some time, we have to look at, well, what are the benefits or what are the potential benefits of, um, of being back in the office, whether it's the idea of innovation, whether it's the idea of people being close together so you have better product coming out of um, uh, an idea flow. So it, there is going to be that that uh, a longer-term issue. I don't think we can necessarily say that Given the pandemic, that um, you know this, uh, that everybody's been so productive, that this should be the new norm, just because uh, people are being somewhat forced into this. And no, that's fair ball. As quickly as possible, right? That's fair ball. I need to take a break here, but just mm-hmm. before the break, just just a ballpark. If if there was a survey of the employees in your workplace, Brian, at uh, the Central One Credit Union, and, and all of the employees who uh, who have been working from home for the past couple of months were given the option to either continue working from home or come on back to work, what percentage of the of your workforce do you think would go? I'm coming back to the office. Leave the kids behind. Get me out of here. Versus those who will. Go no, I'm really comfortable staying at home. I'll I'll just stick right here. Thank you. What percentage do you think is going to stay at home? I don't. It's a good question, and I don't know that answer. But I suspect it would be somewhere. Um, you know, you have a forty percent team being willing to stay home, um, at, but at least partially. I think it's going to be a gray. It's sort of a gradient, right? Whether it's work from home once a week or twice a week, mm-hmm. uh, versus it's an all or none type of a scenario. Uh, so I suspect that we're going to see that type of a um, that type of a balance going forward, especially a lot of a lot of organizations which may not have the space to uh, really uh, to ensure that that distancing within the workplace that they will have those those um, uh, those uh, differing schedules between their employees and uh, and staggered start times and and changes within the workplace as well. Back to the article that I, I was quoting from, the Georgia Strait, that uh, brought you to our attention in the first place. You're also quoted as saying, we've seen a number of technology companies here laying off workers. Uh, this, I think, would come as a surprise. You would you would expect the food and hospitality services, the tourism sector to be severely impacted by the COVID pandemic. But this technology sector business, if anything, Brian, you would look to see an expansion in that regard? Uh, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's going to be, uh, depending upon which types of companies and which technology companies, um, if they are somewhat servicing the uh, some of these hard-hit sectors, you can imagine that there is a, uh, a secondary effect of if you start seeing uh, closures in events, for example. Oh, of course, um, right. Or there is no event, or event management companies, those types of technology groups. So it's going to be, it's going to differ among uh, the the organizations themselves, but I, I think that it's it's a it's a wide ranging impact of the pandemic. Number one, it's not only is it those um, those sectors that we've talked about in terms of retail and uh, tourism, but when we're looking at in terms of the great uh, the overall global trade and service trade type of environment, where you also have a slowing global economy, it's all these factors are are, are percolating through right now through the overall economy and the labor market. 
So it's it absolutely, I think that's uh, different sectors are hit differently, but broadly it's a, it's a negative uh, impact. Interesting. You know, you talked about it, this is a global pandemic and it, it really is important to recognize that in a discussion about any regional or local economy, because we will do what we can in our own backyard to get ourselves up and running again, Brian. But we are only a very small part of a very big financial or economic recovery picture. Canada, uh, which a part of Canada, to say nothing of North America, to say nothing of the world. So uh, we are dependent in British Columbia because of the resource-based nature of our of large sectors or of our economy on the world to uh, come back at a reasonable rate as well, aren't we? Yeah, and, and I think when we look at some of the forecasts out there for the global economy, uh, we should recognize that uh, the International Monetary Fund is looking at a 3% contraction this year in a global economy. Um, that would be the deepest recession since Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, 2008-09 during the Great Financial Crisis, so it was essentially a flat or zero growth. So it, it is, uh, by magnitude, it's quite a bit larger in terms of the downturn. And in Canada, we are expecting, again, not only the, the, the COVID-19 impact, but also the impact on the oil sector from collapsing prices means that the Canadian economy will probably contract somewhere near 8% uh, this year. So it, it is a, a much broader story than anything that's happening necessarily locally. And much of it is, of course, um, being uh, caused by the, the need to shut down parts of the economy due to the virus, to, spread, to limit the spread of the virus. Uh, but of course, that has negative effects more broadly as well. Well, and of course, it's also part of the supply chain, too. I mean, if, even if you have a manufacturing plant somewhere in Van- Metro Vancouver, then you're making a specific widget, uh, but you don't have all the parts mined and available from British Columbia, and you rely on certain bits and pieces to the widget to come to you for assembly at your plant. And if your supply chain has been interrupted, well, so is your manufacturing process, right? Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of efforts to ensure that uh, international supply chains and global trade is relatively unimpeded in terms of the goods flow. Uh, if there's lower demand, that's another story. But in terms of in getting your uh, your inputs, that shouldn't be as big of a problem. Currently, it was, I think, probably in uh, February uh, when we saw the Chinese when in China, we saw the lockdown and the impact on a lot of the production. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think right now it's the question of what's going to be the global growth uh, environment and whether there will be sufficient demand for uh, a lot of products. And, and we have seen um, manufacturers in the region and across Canada start also having to make some changes mm-hmm. as well. As uh, In some cases, you have large-scale manufacturers moving towards PPE type of um a type of uh, good sure. to help with the with the current efforts domestically uh, as their own demand uh, dr- uh, dried up. And a, fi- a final question to you, Mr. Yu, and we are grateful for your time this morning, Brian. You're doing a little extra time than you had imagined. But uh, one of the things that you do at BC's uh, Central One Credit Union is loan people money to buy houses. You hold mortgages. And I wonder what your thinking is with respect to an outlook for housing prices around Metro Vancouver. Uh, we'll talk about mortgages in terms of defaults and, and your willingness to cooperate with mortgage holders to make other arrangements to defer if necessary, but how about house prices in general looking not only through the balance of this tough year, but around the corner into next year? Well, uh, right now in terms of the the housing market, uh, I think that there is obviously going to be some downward pressure in pricing and 
sales have already declined dramatically, as would be expected, sure. given that people are staying at home. Yeah. People don't want people in their homes. Um, that's the uh, I think that's the reality of that. And uh, we should expect, at least in the summer months, that uh, prices will ease. It's going to be a question of you know how quickly is the economy starting to pick back up. Um, what we've seen in terms of the labor market is that. Uh, most of the job losses are occurring uh, at the lower end of the, of the wage spectrum. Right. Um, so it does mean that a lot of work from home, a lot of, um, uh, I guess, home buyers potentially are less affected potentially by the, um, by the impact on the labor market. Um, and as we go through, let's say, into the, into the uh, late summer months, we'll get a better idea of, of uh, what demand really looks like post-pandemic. Um, we have to remember that a lot of the the uh, potential downward pricing momentum right now is people who have to sell their homes. Mm-hmm. Most people have just not listed their homes, so they've decided to wait it out. You bet. Um, if the economy starts to pick up strongly in the in the sort of the let's say the fall period, uh, that'll do a lot to uh, minimize downward pressure on, on pricing. Interesting stuff. Brian, you, thanks very much for this. A pleasure to have you on the program. Now that we met, uh, we must uh, do this again, as uh, particularly as this thing continues to fold. Maybe we'll come back in a few weeks and you can have an assessment of our, uh, our official restart on the 19th. How about that? Sounds great. So we're going to do a little gardening thing for you this morning here on Mother's Day. It's a pleasure to welcome Peter Fitzmorris to the program. Mr. Fitzmorris is Vice President, Merchandising Garden Supplies with Garden Works all around Metro Vancouver. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we had a chat with a fellow from a seed farm uh, on Gabriola Island yesterday. So my first question to you these days is when people are coming to buy things to plant, to eat, or just to look at, are bedding plants more popular, Peter, or are seeds still the go-to way to get things going? It's a good mix of both, I'd say. I think the people that are wanting instant gratification, they're going straight into the bedding area and buying their plants ready grown and want to see them already formed. <laughs> and then, of course, there are the avid gardens that'll the garden center and go into the seed area and, and just stock up on seeds. Still, still time to plant some seeds. Oh, yeah. And we're right in the middle of, of, of seed planting season. And, and it's true because uh, I noticed this the other day. Uh, I was in, a, a, of all places, a Canadian tire store. And they, of course, have their garden section and so on. And I just happened to pass on my way to look at the garden furniture, uh, the seed rack. And it was empty. The whole thing. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of packs of seeds, Peter. And it was completely gone. So, And then we drove by the Mandeville uh, Garden Works location on Marine Drive in Burnaby that same afternoon. Oh, my gosh, was the place packed. Yes. And we've got lots more seeds coming in. We, we keep on getting new orders, so we are keeping up. But it gets, I, I suppose the, the good thing about all of this, from your perspective, is A, you've been allowed to remain open uh, in Ontario, for example. This weekend, Peter, for the first time, gardeners and people interested in the in, in same are actually being allowed to even go to visit uh, a garden store like Garden Works. You have at least had the good fortune to have been available through this uh, past six-week period. Absolutely. We were deemed essential services a few weeks ago. Uh, we were closed for a very brief time and then we reopened and we have had incredible uh, fortune, a good fortune in getting lots of people coming in, buying their plants. And once, it's just so therapeutic, right? It's so good to be growing things. It helps you 
focus on something other than what's going on in the world. Absolutely. And, and I'm noticing, and I mentioned this earlier on the program, Peter, when you just take the dog for a walk through any neighborhood, pick a neighborhood anywhere in greater Vancouver, and the first thing you notice is how much better the neighborhoods are. The lawns are manicured, the flower beds are weeded. Uh, I mean, people have the time, and it shows. Uh, gardens and uh, the presentation package is looking pretty spiffy this year. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. The gardens are looking stunning. And, uh, of course, people are spending a lot of time manicuring and, as you say, watering and nurturing their beautiful gardens. And, Peter, do people, are people buying, because you've got, what, nine stores across B.C.? I'm just curious about what people are buying. For example, are they buying uh, more than decorations and flowers to look at are, because of this pandemic and perhaps the mindset that accompanies it, are more of us buying and planting more things to eat? Well, vegetable growing and growing edibles over the last few years has been trending incredibly um, without COVID, to be honest. But this year, it has been un- un- unsurpassable. It's really amazing how many people are growing vegetables. And I think that's part of the, the thought, right? You might not be able to get some vegetables later on in the year. So why not grow your own? Let's talk uh, for a couple of minutes uh, before the break, Peter, about because uh, I'm assuming and, I'm, and, and in the, the conversation that, that so far, I've sort of been referring to a situation where you have a little plot of land, a little bit of dirt on your property that you can put some seeds in or some bedding plants in. But let's talk for a moment about those avid gardeners and big fans and perhaps first timers, Peter, who don't have that piece of dirt out back, but who do have a couple of planters and big pots on the balcony. Uh, talk to us about the, the ways in which those uh, gardeners can participate and what they should go for. Well, I think on a, you really have to assess your situation. How big is your patio? How much sun is really important? How much sun do you get? That's going to um, affect what you can plant. Sure. And then, of course, there's the wind factor. Some people are on high rises and they might be up on the 15th, 16th floor or higher. Um, so you might want to create a little bit of windbreak or something, mm-hmm. but that is the first thing to do. Your soil is probably the most important one to spend your money on. The soil must be good because if you don't have a good soil, your plants aren't going to thrive. So get a good potting soil, not just garden soil, because that's going to get solidified in a pot, but get yourself a really good planter box mix. Uh, we have lots of different brands of uh, really good or- organic soils if you want to grow some vegetables organically. So mm-hmm. There's lots of options, but choose your pot for the size of your space and then consider the light. Right. The sunshine is is such an important part because there are plants and even vegetables that will grow in partial sunlight. But uh, if, if, if you really have to pay attention, especially if you understand the light exposure of your garden area, you, you have to plant accordingly. You can't plant bright sunlight spots in a partially shaded area, uh, plants in a partially shaded area, can you? And expect Absolutely. success. And, and conversely, too, you don't want to put a shade plant into a hot, sunny location. It's just going to burn. Vegetables in general do like a little bit more sun. So if you're in a really shady spot, it might not be the best option. Rather go for some ornamentals that you can enjoy rather than struggling with vegetables that like sun in a shady spot. But the, the key to beginning, to getting, literally getting your hands dirty as a gardener is soil, isn't it, Peter? Yes, absolutely. 
And and so again, for people who are new but keen, uh, the type of soil you're after. Again, I'm I'm asking you to repeat yourself, but this is important information. Absolutely. So we have a number of options at GardenWorks. The sea soil, my soil, sorry, sea soil complete container complete is a really lovely blend. And then the other soil that we love to sell and our guests really love it is the my soil organic or the container soil. It's all really well blended to form a really good drainage Mm -hmm. and it has good nutrition in it, nutrition for the plants to grow. So choose your soil for the uh, kind of plants that you're going to be planting. And we're happy to advise you on what, if you've got got a particular situation, we'd be happy to help you find the right soil, the right pot. Well, and that's that's of course that's there's there's the bonus too because if you're at the store and you're not a hundred percent sure, somebody there who knows what the heck's going on will be able to guide you and push you in the right direction. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.